Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, The Book of James. As we read through James, we'll see how our faith in Christ should do more than just change the way we think, it should change the way we live. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We'd love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select Contact Us, and send us an email. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you here today. Look, we're in the second week of this series that we're, we call it the book of James because it's about the book of James. And uh, this is what, this is part of what we call our all church study. And very simply, it's an opportunity to invite everybody in the church to study something this time, the book of James, to literally be on the same page in the book of James together for this whole series. And so, I'm glad you're here to hear the message, but I want to also ask you to join a life group. Uh, to join a life group, all you have to do is go on our website and uh, pick one and join it. Um, pick up the book uh, on the book of James and um, begin to spend some time uh, regularly, daily if you can, reading in the book of James and writing down what you sense God is telling you. There's other places to write down notes from sermons that you hear during this series, as well as some uh, pages for you to uh, write down notes from your life group time. And so I want to encourage you to pick one of these up after the service and participate in it because literally from uh, what we do on Sunday, what we do in our personal time with Jesus during the week and what we do in our life groups, it's how we can all be on the same page and study it together and then we can talk about what we're studying and it really has this ability to help us experience some accelerated spiritual growth and depth in our relationship with Jesus. But really, it's important that you understand it's not going to happen unless you invest yourself in it and invest yourself in relationships with one another. Um, you know, coming on Sunday to hear the message is, is part of it. It's just not all of it. So we want to encourage you to do that. I was blessed this week. I began with my life group, and we just had a great time. And life groups, very simply, nothing to, to be uh, afraid of. They're small gatherings of uh, people to study the Bible, to care for one another, to pray for one another, and to build relationships. And so we invite you to join a life group. Let me pray before we jump into this next message. Lord, as we come here today, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would guide us and direct us, that you would give us ears to hear what you want us to hear, and, and so importantly, that you would allow us to take in what we hear and make it a part of living our faith in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Now, as I, I said last week, if I were to give you a theme verse uh, for this, uh, this series, it, it would be that... James says in the second chapter that faith without deeds is dead. We're not saved by doing good deeds. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But the truth of the matter is, if you say you believe in Jesus, but it doesn't translate into how you live your life, in other words, if it doesn't change your heart, attitude toward the rest of the world, has he really changed you? Has he really converted you to a follower? Or have you just given lip service to something that maybe uh, was a value in your family growing up, going to church. See, it's, it's more than going to church. It's about having a relationship with God. And so we believe there's got to be a balance of faith and action. You know, that's why what Pastor Dan was talking about with regards to uh, Celebrate Grammy and, and 
And really, it's so important for us that when we recognize as followers of Jesus, we represent him all the time. And if we say we're Christians, but it doesn't translate into the way we live and the way we treat other people, then it's not effective in sharing the good news of God's love with the rest of the world. And so this is really important to James. And, and last week as we dug into this, uh, you know, we, we looked at this idea that in the first chapter of James, he talks about trials and he says something that is a little mind-boggling. He says, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. He doesn't define what kind of trials. He just says many kinds of trials. And I think we can all Understand that? We all face many kinds of trials. Um, last week, I, I talked about this, but, but I didn't talk about the origins of those trials. So let me just, let me just highlight a couple of uh, things that are important for us to understand. Where do trials come from? Well, trials initially, uh, not initially, some trials come from Satan. Uh, James doesn't go in a lot talking about J uh, Satan when it comes to trials and temptations because he's dealing with uh, the trials that we experience uh, and that oftentimes aren't directly from Satan. But trials and temptations come from Satan. He wants to pull us away from God. He wants to lead us into sin. All right. The, the next way we experience trials is this. Uh, the reality is we live in a fallen world. You can read about the fall of humanity in the third chapter of Genesis where Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And as a consequence of the fall, God said, listen, life's going to be hard now. There, there's going to be uh, some challenges. There's going to be some difficulties as a consequence of breaking this perfect order that I created. And so uh, life is no longer easy. And sometimes that's just a trial. Um, sometimes God tests us and we would say that's a trial. He doesn't tempt us. He doesn't send us trials. But sometimes he may test us to see if we can grow and mature in our faith. Think about Genesis chapter 22. Abraham is tested by God to see if he will be faithful. All right. The other way that we experience trials is this. When we were created by God, we were given free will. In other words, we were given the freedom to choose what we do, what we believe in, what we say, how we think, we were given complete freedom. God doesn't tell us what we have to do and make us do that. And sometimes because we have free will, we make choices that create trials for us or trials for other people. Okay. Going back to the idea that we live in a, in a fallen world because uh, sin has entered into this world. Sometimes people do things that hurt other people or hurt themselves. And those create trials. And then finally, because we live in a fallen world, the perfect order of creation that God created where, where everything was going to be perfect has been broken. And that means that sometimes there are natural disasters that aren't caused by God, but that he allows to happen because the perfect order of the creation has been broken. So that's why we have disease and illness and natural disasters. So, you know, God didn't send Hurricane Florence. He allowed it to happen. So trials happen. They happen to all of us. You're not exempt from them. None of us is exempt of them. And, you know, James says, listen, 
Consider it joy when you experience a trial. Why? So that you have the opportunity to mature in your faith and trust God, to grow up spiritually. And so you have the opportunity to assure yourself that you are a follower of Christ and one day you will receive your eternal life, your salvation. Now, um, as some of you know, this summer I, uh, I had heart surgery and I was out for a couple of months recovering from that heart surgery. And many of you sent me letters and cards and I want to thank you so very much. Uh, I got cards and letters, not just from folks at Valley Brook, but, but uh, you know, people that I know around the country. And I received a, a card from a, a friend back in Minnesota and she wrote me a note and we began to correspond with one another. Old school, we were writing letters um, and... Uh, in, in that correspondence, she wrote back to me after I had written back to her, and she shared with me something that was going on in her life that I had no clue about. She said, you know, I, on August 6th, I, I received the diagnosis from uh, my doctor that I have a, um, a, uh, an eye disease, and I'm starting to go blind. And I go, wow, you know, um, I, candidly, I mean, you know, going blind to me, uh, seems really bad compared to having heart surgery. I'm just being honest with you. Um, and, and, and this is what she wrote. I, I want to read to you uh, about just what she wrote in the letter. She goes, how I figure it is that there are lots worse problems than physical blindness. One being spiritual blindness. Then she wrote, she goes, you know, when Helen Keller was asked if she would like to receive her sight, she said, no. Because the first face I wish to see is that of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And that's my friend's attitude. And, and uh, she said, she went on to talk to me about, you know, how she sees this. And, and she, she wrote a poem. And uh, I'm just going to read one stanza of the poem, uh, poem that she wrote. And, and as she saw her Approaching blindness, she wrote, This twist of fate, another sweet gift, has a wondrous attraction for me. No longer distracted by sights below, I'm gazing upward his beauty to see. I am in awe of her faith. She is literally staring down blindness every day, watching her eyesight get dimmer and dimmer. And she sees this as an opportunity, as a gift, she wrote, to focus on Jesus. My friend has an amazing, joyful attitude as she faces this trial. But as I think through that and I think about what James writes here uh, further on in chapter one, um, I realize that a lot of us, um, when we have trials in our lives, uh, we don't consider it pure joy, do we? Um, you know, uh, some of us question God. Some of us rail at God and yell and scream. And by the way, he's big enough to take that, so it's okay. Um, uh, some of us walk away from God because we feel disappointed and let down. In their disappointment and their anger and their grief, people oftentimes can't come to terms 
with a loving God who allows trials and loss to happen in our lives. Let me just say this. If you're disappointed with God, or even worse, if you've been devastated by God, by what he's allowed to happen in your life, you're in the right place today. You're in the right place because I can't promise you that we have all the answers, but we know that God is with us, that he's for us, not against us, and we will walk with you. And it's okay to share your disappointment with God. And it's okay to even share your doubts. Today we're going to look at what James continues to say as we face trials and as he moves into talking about not just trials but also also temptations. And he points out that in our frustration with God and in our frustration with the trials and temptations uh, that come to life, there is one response that we can have is the wrong response, and it's a sinful response, and that is we blame God for the evil effects of our trials. But here's the truth. God does not tempt us. God does not tempt you or me. Let me read what he writes beginning in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So let's just start with verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So there's two truths right here. First, uh, God cannot be tempted by evil. God has no weakness or tendency which temptation can get a foothold on, which temptation can exploit. God's holy character puts temptation out of reach. He's holy. He's pure. Evil has no appeal to God. Evil is actually repulsive to God. So think that one through. When we sin, when we allow evil into our lives, Even though God loves us completely and totally, that evil is repulsive to him, even when it's in the lives of those who he loves. So God cannot be tempted, all right? Second, God does not use evil to tempt us. He will not. Now, true, sometimes he allows us or puts us into situations to test us, like he did Abraham but he's not going to give you a trial. The purpose of a test is a purpose to encourage us, to build us up, not to cause us to sin, but to strengthen us in our faith in in him. So, So God cannot be tempted and God doesn't tempt us. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. I'll read them again. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desire, evil desire, and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. So, you know, James is is really sort of 
got a couple of things going on here. And, and you, you know, he talks about how um, temptation, when we're tempted and, and we, we completely move from the temptation to the sin, uh, that we um, move all the way there and uh, we're dragged away by our evil desires. So let me say this. If you're feeling temptation in any, any way and any purpose of life and anything that's going on, that's not sinful. That's a human condition, okay? The sin happens when you stop with the temptation and you complete the sin. And so James sort of uses this idea. To me, it's a little bit like fishing where you bait a hook and you put something enticing to a fish. You, you camouflage it. You, you hide the bait. You hide a hook in the bait. And as soon as the fish goes and, and clamps down on it to eat it, all of a sudden it's caught on the hook and it can be dragged away. All right. So it's this idea that we can be dragged away by our evil desire. And so this idea that 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 temptation uh, has its completeness when we fall to it and commit the act of sin and are dragged away by that evil desire. In the very next verse, though, James goes into this this metaphor where he sort of equates um, desire, moving from desire to, to temptation to sin, he equates it to, to childbirth, to, to the whole process. So he says, you, you know, that after desire has conceived, so he basically says when desire uh, conceives, uh, is conceived, it's this idea that the conception occurs when we surrender our will to the temptation whatever it is, and we surrender to the temptation and we commit the sin. And so the, the conception produces a child and the child is called sin. And when sin becomes full grown, when it reaches adulthood, he says, then it produces death. So there's this idea that when we are tempted to sin, we commit a sin. Now, if we recognize it, we own it. And we confess it and ask for forgiveness, we're forgiven right there. But if we like it and we want to stay there and we continue to sin, it grows and matures in our lives and it becomes part of who we are so much so that at some point we say, I'm giving up God for this sin. And that results in spiritual death. That's because we're not dealing with the sin. That's why Scripture tells us it's important for us to confess our sins, to keep short accounts. Uh, earlier this year, I was on a, a conference phone call with a whole bunch of other pastors, and we were discussing some things. And in the midst of the discussion, you know, a, a thought came to my mind, and I, and I just said it. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I'm going, oh, that was really offensive to one of the people on the phone call. And uh, the discussion continued, and then I said, listen, uh, can I stop for a moment? I need to uh, confess that what I said was inappropriate, and I need to ask for forgiveness. Uh, I just need to repent right now. And uh, so I did that right over the uh, conference call, because God just made it very clear to me that, Clark, you stuck your foot in your mouth again. Um, and, and it was uh, offensive and, and sinful. And so I needed to confess it uh, to my brother, who I know it was offensive, and I needed to confess it to God. And, and you know, I, thankfully he, he forgave me, um, my, my friend. Um, and so that's what 
we're talking about here is that if we don't deal with sin, it matures, it grows up, and it becomes so big in our lives, it pushes God out, and it ultimately it leads to spiritual death, total separation from God. And that's what James is saying here. Now, I need to point this out, and you probably have picked up on this. James doesn't really talk about Satan and his role in temptation. Um, it's not that he doesn't think that Satan doesn't tempt us. Um, the Bible pictures, uh, makes it very clear that uh, it pictures Satan as being very active in the world. So um, James is just not presenting a complete holistic analysis of temptation. He only wanted to show that God was not the cause of sin and he laid the blame for sin upon human weakness and disobedience. So he's not saying Satan's not active. He just doesn't deal with this in his, in his letter. Now, for emphasis about how serious James takes this, look at verse 16. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived that, that, uh, um, that God tempts you. God does not tempt you. Don't be deceived that if you don't deal with sin, it's going to take over your life and cause spiritual death. Don't be deceived that there is temptation out there trying to drag you away by your evil desires. Don't be deceived. He wants us to know that temptation is real that God can't be tempted and God doesn't tempt us, but we need to take responsibility so that we don't fall into sin by our human weakness and our disobedience. So in this process, he's saying God's not tempting you. So what does God do? This is what God does. God is the giver of all good things. James says that in the very next verse, verse 17 and 18. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a, a kind of first fruits for all he has created. Again, there's a lot there. Um, James knew something that you and I need to know. Every perfect gift is from God. James knew that. He believed it in his heart. And he staked his life on it. This is how I know he staked his life on it. Because uh, last week when we looked at the first verse in James, he's writing, he says, he says to the believers, uh, to uh, the 12 tribes that are scattered throughout the known world. Now, obviously, historically, the Jews have been scattered around the world, but now he's talking to the believers. And if you go into the book of Acts, into chapter 8, you really see the persecution that James and the other believers experienced. I'm just going to read to you a little bit there. It's not going to be on the screen, but the, this is what they experienced. And this is right after the first leader of the church, Stephen, has been killed for his faith. He's become a martyr. And then we read this. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But then it says this, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So the, the, the church was going through this major persecution and, and Christ followers were scattering. And it's in this context with this knowledge that James 
wrote this letter to be disseminated throughout the known world so that the Christ followers, wherever they had scattered to, could understand that, that in the midst of their temptation and trials that God was still faithful and God was still with them. He wanted them to know this. And in the midst of that, he said, every good and perfect gift comes down from God. In the midst of being persecuted for their beliefs, in the, in the midst of facing trials, in the midst of seeing their friends and even family members become martyrs, he can say two things that are really important. Consider it pure joy when you face trials. And every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. You know, when he talks about the Father and about gifts, it echoes the words of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is James' half-brother. Jesus said this, Which of you, if your child asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? We have a good, good God, a good, good heavenly father who wants the best for his sons and daughters. He gives us good and perfect gifts. And just to reinforce this, James uses these terms to speak about God. He calls God the father of heavenly lights as opposed to the father of darkness, who is Satan. He wants you to understand that God is light and there is no darkness in him. And he shines on the lives of his sons and daughters faithfully day in and day out. And then James goes on and he says this about God. He says, God does not change like shifting shadows. Now, if you grew up on the King James, uh, you'll recognize this. The King James says that God, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In the, the old King James English, and they understood that um, God's light, his heavenly light, was pure and perfect and constant. Unlike the sun that rises and sets every day, the sun comes up every morning and second by second, the shadows created by the sun shift. You've experienced it. You, you've stood in the sun and you've seen it change. What he wanted us to understand is that there's no shadow of changing with God. That that his faithfulness, his constantness, his love for you and for me never changes. Theologians call this immutability, unchangeableness. He's, he's never changing. Not ever, never. He's never changing. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I love the hymn writer who wrote, Great is Thy Faithfulness, because the hymn writer grabbed it. And this is what he said. 
Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. And then he goes into great is thy faithfulness. After focusing on the faithfulness of God, then James turns to focus on the evidence of his faithfulness, the most important gift that he has given us. And it is what he says in verse 18. God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So what he's saying is he, he gave us a birth, a new birth. He allowed us to be born again through the word. What he's saying here, the word means the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that we can become new people. We can become spiritually reborn by accepting the testimony of God's word that said God loves us so much that he sent his son into the world to die for us and that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish eternally, but they'll have eternal life. That's the good news. Then he uses that strange phrase that we might be a kind of first fruits of all they cre- all he created. The idea of first fruits is when you you know in an agrarian culture in a farming culture when you uh, plant a new crop or when you plant any crop the the first harvest you know right now we've got tomatoes in our in our house, at our yard and the tomatoes they produce for uh, a couple of months here. Um, but the first fruits, they consider always to be the, uh, you know, significant. And he says, he, he's talking to the first century Christians, the first ones who believed in Jesus. And, and he's affirming them and, and saying, listen, you are the first fruits of the gospel. And I don't want you to, to fall back in the trials and and temptations. You're the the first of what God's created that's going to go on for millennia. He says, listen, I've given you this gift, the best gift of all, and it's going to go on forever. And I want you to hold on to it despite what's going on in the world. Now think that one through, you know. we, We live our lives, you know, some of us will live... 70, some of us live 80, 90, few of us may live to be 100. Um, but on the, on the line of eternity, if we could stretch a line from that wall to that wall, uh, you know, your 70, 80, 90 years would be a speck on that line in the scheme of eternity. We're going to live a lot longer in eternity than we are here on earth. And sometimes our focus gets messed up because we think about only living on earth and we don't think about eternity. But, you know, we need to recognize that he's given us this great gift. And yes, uh, Jesus said, uh, in this world you will have troubles, but I've overcome the world. So he's basically saying, listen, it's okay. We can get through this together. Despite the trials, despite what's going on, we can do this. God is faithful. And will take us through whatever temptations, whatever trials we have. Now, I know that for some of us to hear this message and to read these scriptures in this first chapter are hard. Because you don't feel like God is faithful to you. You feel like God has let you down. 
You feel like God uh, has not done what you expected him to do. And some of you even doubt that God is really who he says he is. Here's the truth. We all go through trials and temptations, and we all have doubts. Uh, I will candidly share with you, sometimes as a pastor, I still have doubts. But one of the things that, that, gives, that sort of steals my faith and, and, and gives me strength is I think about thou over the last 2,000 years, Millions, if not billions of followers of Jesus Christ have suffered far more than I will ever suffer. Who have faced harder temptations than I will ever know. Who have gone through the fire and staked their life on it and even become martyrs for Jesus. And I think I can stand on their faith when I'm struggling with doubt. I don't have to have it all figured out. I can, can rest on what James and what Peter and what John went through and the other disciples and the other followers of Christ throughout the, the centuries. It encourages me. And I bring that up because of this. You know, as a church, we have one another. We're supposed to lean on one another. We are supposed to connect. And so when we go through trials and, and tribulations and when we have doubts, we should lean on one another and we should, you know, openly, willingly, you know, share with others what's going on. And I know that seems like it could be a risk, but it's important for us to do that because there are others of us who have gone through the trials and we can encourage you. But let me say this. I know it's hard to share for those of you who are doing well and somebody becomes to share their trials or temptations with you, here's the first thing you do. Zip this and open these. They don't need to know three steps to figure it all out that you have to share with them. And, and they don't need to know how you've gone through something worse. They just need to have a brother or sister whose Faith is stronger right there just to say, well, I know, I'm with you. I'm going to pray for you, and I'll check back with you next week. We need to do life together. You know, uh, I said this before, you know, it's not, I'm not talking about our Valley Brook staff only. I'm not talking about our Valley Brook leaders only. I'm talking about all of us as followers of Christ. We need to, to care for one another and support one another. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've paid any attention to the hurricane that's going on, if you watched what's going on, I've watched some of them. I have family in North Carolina and South Carolina. They're all safe. Um, they're going through some of the stuff we, we went through a couple of years ago um, without power and those kinds of things, but, but they're all safe. And tragically, you know, uh, some people have gone through uh, trials and lost loved ones, and, and we need to pray for them, and we need to support them. And if you know people down there, you need to, to reach out to them. Um, but I, I was watching the news, and I heard this story, and it, it touched my heart. There's a, a little church down in uh, Calabash, North Carolina. I've been to Calabash. I grew up in North Carolina. I know all these towns. Um, you know, Cynthia grew up in South Carolina. We know all of these places. And it, the, there's a church called um, Mount Pleasant Missionary Baptist Church. And for 63 years, um, they have been opening their church doors for their members as well as anybody who needs 
uh, a safe haven from a hurricane. It all started because they got basically trapped in the church during Hurricane Hazel 63 years ago and every hurricane since. They just said, we're going to hole up there and we're going to invite anybody who wants to come in for safe haven. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to feed people nice warm food and we're going to give them a place to sleep and they can ride out the storm until it's over. I thought, what a powerful picture of what the church is supposed to be like. And I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about people. And so, uh, you know, if someone comes to you who's struggling, who's doubting, will you be that safe haven for them? If you're struggling and you're doubting, will you take the risk to share that with somebody and let them encourage you and pray for you? You know, the reason that, that we're so excited about loving on the town where God has made, established this church is because we realize that we have something that's precious and it's not just for us and we want to share it with people and in this day and age um, people are, are tired of hearing that you're a Christian and that you have eternal life they want to see that it makes a difference in the way you live and the way you treat people and that you would love them regardless of where they are that you would listen to them regardless of what's going on in their life, that you would be the friend that Jesus would be to them. And so what we're doing in reaching out in this celebration is really just a, a microcosm of how we should live our lives. You know, so we have this opportunity in Granby. It's not, it's not about Granby, it doesn't matter what town you live in. We want you to be there, but we're supposed to do this every day. You know, whether we live in Massachusetts or Connecticut or whether we live in Windsor or Granville, it doesn't matter. We're, we're supposed to live how we say we believe. So that's what I want us to know. And, and it's based on this foundation that we have a God who is so faithful to us that he's changed our lives and that he walks with us through trials and tribulations and temptations, that he's always there, that he's a good father, he gives us what we need and we need to encourage people when they don't experience that. You know, earlier I quoted from the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And, and if you've ever read the lyrics and as you think about them when you sing them, they're just such deep, rich words about how faithful God is to you and me in all of life. Will we have trials and temptations? Yes, but God is still faithful. So I want to close with this hymn, and I want you to think about how faithful God is to you. So would you stand as we sing this? Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.